Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the Top 250 Podcast. I'm Sam Kane, and today my guest is Brian Kane, a.k.a. BK, a.k.a. my dad. How you doing today? Looking forward to uh, doing this oldie but goodie. This uh, this movie's from 1957. It's directed by young Sidney Lumet. It stars Henry Fonda. That film is 12 Angry Men. The film takes place inside a courthouse in New York City. It's not explicitly stated that's the Big Apple, but we're led to believe that because a character looks out the window and claims to see the Woolworth building, meaning uh, that this courthouse would be in the Tribeca area of Manhattan. This is actually where uh, World Trade Center is located, same neighborhood, although Mm -hmm. towers hadn't been built yet in 1957. And the one thing that I caught right as the movie started was when they, the camera scanned up to the top of the building and the words on the top of the building, I wrote it down, said administration of justice is the firmest pillar of good. Right. Yeah. That's uh, kind of uh, alludes to the theme of the movie, which is uh, demonstrated the most by uh, juror yeah. number eight. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of cool that they had that. Yeah, I, I believe it's a real courthouse in New York City, and they, they've they used it in other movies. Um, I think they use it in The Godfather as well as Goodfellas. Yeah, and, you know, the other th- what struck me about that location, it's, it literally was two rooms. Well, actually, at the very end, they showed the, the front of the courthouse again. It started off with, being in the front of the building, then they pan to the courthouse itself, mm-hmm. and then they, the, the judge dismissed the jurors. They pan to the, the teenage boy who uh, was on trial and um, zoomed in on his eyes, you know, like he was petrified. Yeah, yeah. What? He really didn't look like a stone-cold no. killer, like he's made out I, I to think be. he was just so... Uh, uh, he was just... You know, like the, the the classic deer in the headlights look. Yeah, like way what, over his head. what is happening here? Because uh, he knows that if it comes, if the if the jury comes back as a, with a guilty plea, they actually did do the chair back then. They actually did execute people uh, in murder trials uh, or accused of murder. Yeah, that oh, surprised murder. me. They they still did that up north. They, they they still did that, yeah. It wasn't until the 60s that that started changing. But that was uh, a very real consequence. And you could see it in the, in the uh, boy's eyes about what what could happen. And, you know, I think you just said, you just said this. If, if it was one of the so-called punks, no-good punks from the neighborhood, right, from a bad neighborhood, I think that you would probably have a different vision of that person. Somebody that didn't care, or somebody that so tough that they weren't going to show it. Yeah, like kind of disconnected from everything going on. Right. This kid was very, I think, a combination of being aware of what's happening, but also can't understand why it was happening because I, I, you know, he, he probably felt that hey, I didn't do it. So, um, but anyway. 
Um, but, you know, so you have that courtroom scene, and then they go right into the jury room. Well, how about the judge? Did you notice the judge in that first scene and how just disinterested he seemed in all of yeah. it? Yeah, he's resting his his head on his hand. Right. That, that Like everybody, you know, it, w- it was almost like this was going to be a slam dunk type of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there was enough evidence given there's a poor kid from a bad neighborhood and it's just a classic tale are just bad people and that they automatically are going to be considered guilty because not only from where they're from or the type of person they are, how they look. You, you can, but that's a good observation, Sam, about the, uh, about the judge. Cause now I, I, when I think about it, you're right. He did seem disinterested in things and just fulfilled his duty of telling the juror what they had to do. Yeah. It takes a sip of water. And for me, when you went into that jury room, they all have their own um, uh, uh, mind made up about what they were going to do, what, how they were going to um, make their verdict. And uh, I just felt the room felt that way, too, with the, the black and white film. just made it seem as if people's opinions weren't going to come out. And sure enough, they, they decided to do an early vote, and then it was, you know, 11 guilty and one not guilty. Right, as juror number 10 says, there's always one. Juror 8 um, basically goes against the mob opinion. And, uh, right, right. Says, hey, let's look uh, into this more. Yeah, but the, the fact that there's no outdoor scenes, it's only concrete, a very hot day, so people are going to be irritated to begin with. The fan wasn't working at first. Mm-hmm. I think they finally realized that the fan... The fan switch was tied to the light switch. So when they somebody turned on the lights, the fan went on. I think it also added to the, the fact that they wanted to get this done quickly. It was hot. Uh, you know, one guy wanted to go to the ball game. Yeah. Um, that's all he cared about. Um, you know, the guy that was... Um, oh, I forget his Problem name. child's Jack Warden. Yeah, Jack Warden, right? Problem child guy. Yep. Uh, and he had that classic voice even back then. But what, I think what Henry Fonda just tried to have a discussion. You know, he said, "Look, I'm not convinced um, that he's guilty, and I think we should talk about it more." So what what came out? He started uh, bringing up points of how the defense lawyer was not very good. And then ran, even ran a profile of what this case would be like um, for somebody um, if they really wanted to do a good job. It's not going to get them anywhere in their career. And a lot of times these um, public defenders, the public defenders, yeah. you know, they're assigned these cases. They probably don't want them because they, 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 it's like another kid from a bad neighborhood is accused of murder and why would I put a lot of energy into something like that because it's going to convince a lot it's going to take a lot of energy to convince people otherwise so it, and it was brought out that he didn't do his due diligence in preparing the case or, or, or even his job within the court and you know it came out that you know he, he just took word of people without really thinking about how that could really happen. Uh, and then he, he had enough 
um, to say, you know, the woman across the building, across the, by the, on the other side of the L, the old man in the, the apartment um, on the same floor, seeing somebody running. Uh, so he really didn't do a very good job of probing further and really trying to understand what, what does that mean. And, and it was the, they, that's what ended up happening in that jury room is that they actually went through a, a whole uh, scenario of what a lawyer would normally do in the courtroom, uh, which was kind of interesting. Yeah, the, but, in fact, I, I don't think they allow that. They would probably call it a mistrial if someone reported jury number eight because you're not supposed to bring in new items into a case. Like the jury's supposed to only go by what was presented in the court and juror That's eight right. he brought yeah. in a knife he, he went out and bought um a knife similar to that that they say was used exactly knife. in fact that was one of the things that was that they were trying to hold is hey the, the evidence is clear here's the knife it's a very unusual knife and the boy supposedly you know lost it when he was going to the movies but then henry fonda brings the exact same knife into the courtroom. So yeah, that yeah, I guess there are some things that probably could have been challenged today, but I I, I don't know how that happens, you know, because the you know the discussion is within those those you know those, that room. Unless yeah. the juror just says, look, there's, there's something else that's not right, and we're hung jury. Yeah, but, so someone could have reported juror eight, but. What I saw happening really throughout the whole process of trying to convince people to, to look at it differently, it was, you know, everybody kept saying, look at the facts, look at the facts. And Henry Fonda was also saying, let's talk about the facts. But what really was going on was there were a lot of people's personal feelings that were being entered into why they were, um, they thought the kid was guilty. And I think a lot of it um, was rooted in prejudice. You know, the type of person, the neighborhood he's from, um, typical of, of, of a bad seed doing something like this. The father hit him, so yeah, it made sense that he just retaliated and, and ended up killing him. Um, what was interesting is that Jack Klugman was, uh, said, look, I came from this type of neighborhood. I know what it's like. And um, he, it's interesting because he was one of the guys that, you know, he, he was guilty and he, he issued a guilty verdict at first. Yeah, and I think he passed um, when they, they first um, went around the room and were asked to explain why they thought it was guilty. He, oh, he just right, said, yeah. I passed. Um, yeah, let, let's go over. Um, so everyone changes th- I mean, obviously, this is spoilers, but we're assuming you've seen the movie at this point to people listening. Um, but the everyone in the end changes their vote to not guilty. Um, so, the obviously, juror number eight was the first one, Henry Fonda. The second person to change their vote was uh, the elderly man, juror number nine, right next to Henry Fonda. And then uh, the third one was, uh, like you mentioned, Jack Klugman. The um, I think that was juror number five. Um, he was actually the 
the last cast member of the movie to pass away. He passed away in 2012. He was 90 years old. Um, so there, there's no one alive from the movie anymore. Um, so he was number three. The fourth one was the immigrant, the uh, European watchmaker. Um, right, right. Actually, him, the the actor, I don't know the actor's name off the top of my head, um, the actor who played the immigrant and uh, the elderly man were actually in the original 1954 TV version. They were the only actors oh, who okay. came back yep. for this movie. It's kind of interesting. I didn't know that. Um, so, yeah, the watchmaker was number four. Number five was uh, juror number two, the, the kind of submissive banker who uh, we didn't really add too much to the discussion. Um, and then the sixth one was the middle-class house painter, who I believe is juror number six. And then <laughs> the uh, seventh one was actually juror number seven. Um, and this, uh, I think this what um, swayed, hi I think his vote swayed to the, the not guilty side. Um, that was Jack Warden. Um, so the, the, the young guy who was uh, like, an, I think he was an, an ad executive. Yes, he was actually the next one to, oh, okay. to change his vote. And um, then the ninth one was the leader of the jury. Um, was like yeah, Martin, Martin Balsam. Yeah, yeah, he was like kind of the moderator of everyone. The tenth one was Ed Begley's character, the guy who would probably most likely vote for Trump if he was alive today. You almost hear that coming through, that people won't change their mind no matter what you tell them is actually Yeah, there's there's a good quote in the movie. I think it's from juror number eight. I think he's he says it about juror number seven, mentioning it to um, juror number nine. He says he he won't listen. He never will. And that I, I actually wrote that down, Sam. That's interesting. You said that. He said he can't hear you. He never will. Okay. Yeah. When he, when he was walking toward the bathroom, because mm -hmm. he he got up and walked away while I think it was the immigrant talking. Right. Yep. Was. And, and he said, hey, you know, you, you're walking away from me, and I'm trying to tell you something. And then, I don't know, it was it might have been Henry Fonda that said, he can't hear you, he never will. Yeah, I think it, it was. Yeah, it goes back to when you have a, a certain prejudice in your mind, you're going to stick with that. That's your answer. That's your approach. That's your direction. Yeah, and it's funny. Jack Warren, Jury 7, he even says, he won't change my mind. We can talk about this for a hundred years, referring to changing his vote to not guilty. But he ends up changing it in under a hundred minutes. <laughs> well, uh, you know, what's interesting, too, is that there were certain things that came out that were talked about as part of the trial. And one of them that I remember was the kid was accused of saying to the cop, I'll kill you, I'll kill you. And at one point, Lee J. Cobb got so worked up at Henry Fonda for something, and he ended up saying, I'll kill him, I'll kill him. And then everybody realized that in the heat of the moment, you actually can't say that, but you're not really going to kill somebody. Mm -hmm. So I thought that that was interesting that that came out. 
So that was one of the things that they were saying. Hey, the old man heard somebody say, I'll, I'll kill you, I'll kill you. So it was a very interesting approach to how he broke down each of the different things. He really was operating like a lawyer. He really was. Yeah, he was like a master of persuasion. But again, he was just trying to have a discussion. And then the thing with E.G. Marshall had these glasses that were would pinch him. Yeah. So he was the second to last to change his vote to not guilty, and this is what convinced him not to do it. Yeah, and somebody had brought up about what that does. It might have even been the old man. What brought up and made marks on his nose. Yep, it was the old man. And then they, they talked about how the woman who supposedly saw the murder from across the way and was an L train going by, so through the windows of the L train, saw this murder, but they noticed that she had the same marks on her nose. So they started questioning, I wonder if she wears glasses. And then they went through the whole scenario of, well, she was having a tough time sleeping, and she was in bed. Who wears her glasses to bed? Nobody does. And if she saw this thing unfolding, would she have the presence of mind to actually grab her glasses, put them on, and look out of her window? And, you know, it was presented that it was this kid that killed his father, according to the woman. So I thought that was also a very interesting scene that when E.G. Marshall started thinking about it, he realized there's no way that that woman could have actually made out the details of who was doing what. Yeah, and he also stood out at the beginning of the movie for not being affected by the heat at all he wasn't sweating or anything like that and then during that moment you start to see him sweat that's a, that's a good observation i didn't catch that that's a really interesting observation yeah there's a couple of things that I, I i don't i know that there's symbolism going on here but i i still haven't figured it out the guy who had the cold and i don't know if that was just a break the scene at certain times to hear somebody coughing the other thing uh, was the rain the thunderstorm that came so the beginning of the movie, it's very quiet. So, I mean, back then, you know, radio dramas were very popular. So sure. they would often use sound to help create tension. It's very quiet at the beginning of the movie. And then as time goes on, you start hearing more sounds throughout the background, creating more tension. So read somewhere that the reason they wanted the fan to start working again was uh, it was almost like kind of a, a sense of relief to the audience because at that point um, uh, it was tied. The guilty and non-guilty votes were tied, so it was like a, a sense of relief for everyone. And then the, the thunderstorm created more sound in the background, creating more tension. Like if you... Mm -hmm. I guess if you listen to the movie early on, it's night and day between the sounds that are in the background. And it sounds like there's a lot more tension. And also the camera work was really well done for something that only takes place in one room. So at the beginning, it's a lot of overhead shots, a lot of high angles, a lot of long takes. Uh, multiple characters in each shot, and uh, the camera kind of follows the actors walking around, creating a good fluidity. And then towards the middle of the movie, the camera gets more eye level, on the same level of uh, 
each character's. Towards the end, it's a lot of close-ups and low-angle shots, giving uh, each character kind of a sense of power since you're looking up at them. And there's a lot more cutting. It's not long shots. It's cutting a lot between each shot to create tension. So I thought that was really cool because it's not easy doing a movie that takes place in one room and keeping it so fresh and interesting, keeping people uh, I think about how many takes that must have had in order to, to do the shot. I didn't think about how, how many different angles they had to, had to put it all together, doing scene after scene after scene at different angles. Pretty interesting. Yeah, th- I guess they rehearsed for two weeks before finally filming it. So I think they really got down the blocking and everything and where the camera mm-hmm. was going to be, and they got all their lines memorized so that they weren't wasting film when it came time to shoot. And one thing that hit me, the fact that they didn't know each other's names and they didn't regress anybody by name in the room. Very, very interesting. Yeah, definitely. But what a powerful movie. Yeah, it really is. Um, And I think it will will age really well because... um, the dynamic opinions of strangers i mean there's always going to be that the all the personality types are still relevant today i think they'll still be relevant even in a hundred years uh when when the film's a hundred years old uh 2057 i think um, yeah i think uh i i know that a lot of people who don't like black and white films younger people actually single this one out as one they enjoy um and it's yeah i I think it's just one of those rare films that um that will be a hundred years old it'll still be relevant i think like this movie maybe it's a wonderful life would be another one that will still be very powerful despite it's about this movie is that it was really uh an insight into uh you know how society can be that there are some people that are going to be open-minded and then there are some people that are just going to be have these deep-seated prejudices that they will never change in the end as humans we have these traits that no matter where we are at at any point in, in the you know the earth's time these will always be human traits that will show up yeah, without a doubt. I'd say one of the only things that didn't really age well even now is the fact there wasn't a single woman in the jury or even a, a person of color in the film. That I don't think that would settle well with uh, audiences today. That's an interesting observation. You're right. That's an interesting observation. Did they, did they allow women in juries back then? Uh, you know, I'd have to I'm sure it. everybody was, uh, I'm sure everybody, you know, who was a registered voter would get selected. Right. And I'm sure they did. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but what happens with, uh, in, in, uh, particularly in, uh, high profile trials like murder. Uh, you know, the the uh, lawyers will 
get all the jurors that then um, selected to to come in uh, for this particular case, and they do what's called a voir dire, which is French for to see and to say, right? And then what the lawyers do is they uh, they choose um, the jury, and both lawyers have to agree to it, you know, and they go through this voir dire to see, okay, are there any, you know, this is what they're supposed to do. Are there any prejudices, existing prejudices that will shift the case one way or another? Uh, are they mentally fit in order to to be a juror in the, in the trial? And um, they get accepted. You know, they, they you know, they, they go to the judge and they say, I'll accept jury number five or accept jury number six. And the, they'll go through that whole process until they get the, the enough to, for the um, for the jury. Now it's interesting. In the very beginning, you remember there were two other males that were alternates, and yeah. they were they even though they were part of the trial and heard everything, they were dismissed when the the, the twelve regular jurors went into that room. Yeah, and well, the reason for the the reason yeah, for the alternate is, is in the event that somebody gets sick or something happens while they're deliberating, that the alternate would come in and, and serve as the as the replacement. Oh, wow. Or if there was something that happened while the trial was going on, and one jury juror couldn't make it, and had that something emergency or whatever, they would have another one oh. um, serve as the replacement. So this was actually remade in 1997. Uh, had a pretty good cast. Uh, Ozzie Davis, James Gandolfini, Tony Danza played Jack Warden's character. Jack Lemon played juror number eight. Uh, Edward James Olmos was in it. And then uh, George C. Scott uh took over uh, E.J. Cobb's role as juror number eight, which is the, the second he's time up, huh? he's taken over a role for Lee J. Cobb. You know, he, he took over um, Lieutenant uh, Kinderman, The Exorcist, was originally played by E.J. Cobb, and then in The Exorcist sequel, uh, George C. Scott played Kinderman. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Just so, so the, the acting is so great in this, and a lot of them just come off as very natural and play off each other so well. Like, sometimes you'll watch a, a movie from back then, and it seems a little theatrical, like you, you see that someone's acting. I mean, maybe a couple scenes are like that in this, but there's also oh. just a lot of very natural moments. Um one of my favorite being that um, the the ad executive um, says something like uh, wouldn't want to um, the the murderer wouldn't want to leave his knife in a, a guy's body and then Jack Warden's character says yeah especially a relative and like then uh, juror number twelve just cracks up and just like the way he reacts to it. It, it just it's so natural it's like you're you're watching two real people and he also he he jabs uh juror number seven 
in in the stomach right after it and just the way um jack warden reacts it he doesn't say anything but he just gives a look of like hey don't don't jab me what are you doing and uh, it's just like small stuff like that it's just like the acting is just well i you know i i i never felt that (coughs) i was watching a movie i felt like i was in the room following their conversation and the discussion i mean that's that's really what good acting does is you don't feel like you're watching a movie you feel like you're actually witnessing something how about um the bathrooms back then what what was the thing they were drying their hands with it it seemed like just one single sheet of yeah you talk about breeding um germs and bacteria So, uh, and I've I've seen those in old bathrooms. Uh, it is. It's a, it's basically a cloth towel that goes around, and I I don't know if there's supposedly some cleaning apparatus inside of it. I doubt it. But the ones that I've seen, you would never want to touch because you you can see that they're already dirty and they're already this who knows what has touched those things. But that was before paper towels and that was before hand dryers. Oh, so that's the, way they, that's the way they did it in those bathrooms back then. Yeah, watching that, I knew I knew that you were watching this as well and <laughs> you were grinning to see that. Yeah, great movie. Still holds up today. Good, good job. Well, thank you once again, Sam. Yeah. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking about it. It was a really good conversation.